0: It was several years ago, I don't know how many to be exact, but Sister in Christ came to talk to me, and it was such that conversation dealt with frustration on her part, uh, maybe with her own spiritual life, but maybe the way she was addressing it, it was about the congregation that we attended together and where I was preaching at the time. It boils down to it is that I just really wonder as she said how many people just really believe and I think the point of her question was that she thought it would be people would be different if they really believed and I have to agree because in Pentecost we read that the people were changed I mean here we have people who crucified Christ and they were changed dramatically changed in their entire outlook and how they would worship God and how they would follow Him, how they related with one another. And I thought about that conversation recently as reading through the Gospels and reflecting upon life in general. Reading through the Gospels, uh, passage in Matthew 24, dealing with the return of Christ. This passage is also found in Luke chapter 17. Uh, Jesus says in verse 36 of 24, Of that day and that hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark... And they did not understand until the flood came, took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. I was thinking about that, and I thought to myself, life really doesn't change a whole lot. That's why you'll hear me often say that the emotions that we have today, they had thousands of years ago. They feel just like we do. So we can put ourselves in a situation and we know what it means to be frustrated. We know what it means to be happy and joyful. We know what it means to be excited and strong of faith. And we also know what it means to be weak of faith. So we look at our world and sometimes it's discouraging. Hopefully when we all come together it's more uplifting and encouraging than it is discouraging. But sometimes I think we can all become a little bit cynical, a little bit sideways, if you will, and maybe that shows forth on how we relate with one another in the body of Christ. It will be as it was in the days of Noah. Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Luke takes it a little bit further in his passage because he goes on and adds to it, was it will be as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the Son of Man. And as it happened in the days of Lot, they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day Lot went forth, went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on that day that the Son of Man is revealed. In those two passages, we see that life goes on. Life went on so much to the point that people got complacent in their lives. And they just lived their lives day to day. Get up in the morning, eat breakfast, go to work, come home, go to bed, eat supper, go to bed, get up, eat breakfast, go to work, come home, go to bed, to work, to home, to work, to home, to work, to home. Buying and selling, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and going all around through life without a thought in the world of tomorrow. And it got so bad in the days of Noah that it says in chapter six, or chapter six and verse five, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now keep that thought in mind, because we're going to contrast it in a little bit with another passage of Scripture. He goes on to say, The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. He said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to the creeping things, to the birds of the sky, for I'm sorry I have made them. He said, I'm done. I'm going to forget it all. I'm going to just wipe it clean. except And don't you like, but... One of these days, I keep telling myself, I'm going to go through and get all the passages where it says, But God, but the Lord, because there it is. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now think about it for a moment as I started doing my preparation and my thinking along this, I just drew a line on a piece of paper, divided it into ten parts. This is not the most accurate graph I know. But what I did was I tried to plot out approximately where the generations fell, starting with Jared, who lived, I think, 962 years. And when his son Enoch was born, I think he was 185 and then Enoch lived 65 years. And then Methuselah was born. And Enoch lived another 300 years and he died. Well, he didn't die. He was taken by God. He walked with God. Keep that thought in mind as well. And Lamech was born to Methuselah at 182, I think it was. And then some years later, Noah was born to Lamech. We had five generations there. Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah. And four of the five generations coexisted. Because they lived a long time. Enoch was the one who didn't live very long. But he didn't die. He walked with God for he was taken. And it says here in Noah that he was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, I'd like to know a little bit about how Enoch walked with God, but don't you know that there were some stories. Noah was, didn't know his great-grandfather Enoch, but he knew about him, because families talk. You have your genealogies. You, you talk about the family history, and don't you know that Jared and Methuselah and Laman were talking about Enoch? And maybe that's what motivated Noah to live different than his peers. That he walked with God, as Scripture tells us. Anyway, God tells Noah what he's going to do. He's going to... The world's corrupt. I'm summarizing, if you will. The world's, world's corrupt. I'm going to destroy all flesh on the earth. Make an ark of gopher wood with rooms and covered inside and out with pitch. He tells him the size of it's supposed to be. Behold, I am bringing... I Even I am bringing a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh... In which is the bread of life uh, from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall perish, but I'll establish my covenant with you. I don't know what Noah's thought was when God said, I'm going to bring a flood. Up until that time, they didn't know what rain was, they didn't know what floods were. Today, when you tell somebody about a flood, they're going to know about it, they've had experience. We hadn't lived in Yuma very long, it was 1976, and they were, 1996, they were going to have forecasting a hurricane. And they were sand, sandbags filling up at the convention center, and people were getting them, because, what? 1976, 20 years before, a hurricane hit. Hurricane force winds, lots of rain. Lots of rain in the desert, when it doesn't go into the ground, Floods. It was bad. And there was a flood a few years before we moved here as well. 92, 93, I think it flooded in many places. People today know what a flood is all about. They didn't back then. So Noah was dealing with new information. Noah built the ark. He continued on. And don't you know, just like what you face today in the world, when you're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and all your peers and everybody in the world, that just tells me that life is going on, that people are living for the moment, for the day. They're just going on with life in their normal occupations. Some good, some bad, some indifferent. And then there came a flood. Noah gave a warning. He was a hundred years. He was 500 years old. God talks to him and says, build an ark. It says he's 600 years old. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in chapter 7, verse 11, in the second day of the month, all the fountains of the deep burst open, the floodgates of the sky were open, rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very same day, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his sons, uh, Noah, Noah 's wife, and their three wives and the sons entered with, with them entered the ark, and all the animals, all the, everything, gathered into the ark. They went into the ark by twos, and it continues on. Those that entered the ark, male and female all flesh, entered as God commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Now, you think about what was going on in the mind of the people at that time. For a hundred years, Noah has been being mocked. What are you doing, Noah? What do you need all this wood for? God spoke to me, told me to build an ark. He's going to bring about a flood. A flood? What's a flood?
1: Well, he's going to cause it to rain.
0: What's rain? He's going to cause the earth to open up, and water from the underground is going to come out, and it's going to be all over the earth what are you talking about they started laughing at him making fun of him because day by day he continued on for a hundred years building the ark gathering the animals together preparing everything so it would have supplies necessary for the time in the ark and to replenish the earth when the floods subsided and they're all making fun of him maybe just like they make fun of you today for being a Christian and it wasn't too long. It's been two weeks now since we've had the Supreme Court decision legalizing or recognizing uh, gay marriages. Now, God doesn't recognize them. Man can recognize them all he wants. It doesn't mean they're right before God. But there have been several leaders politically who have said churches are going to have to change their opinion on things. They're going to have to come forward and catch up with life today instead of believing that Bible makes me think about something that Charles Swindoll said several years ago. He went to a seminary and asked people, if, there was a, of, a survey of people who graduated from various theological seminaries. One of the questions he asked, do you think Jesus is coming again? Only three percent believed that Jesus was going to return. Three percent. Now these are people who are going into the ministry to teach, I thought, the word of God. Whoops, that's not good. Uh, pardon me. You should have to hate it when that happens to you. So if I, get, if I get to the conclusion first, we'll go back to the... You know, now, forget it. Uh, 3%. John MacArthur, another uh, pastor, if you will, uh, author of many Christian books, goes to a convention... 10% of the ministers at the convention believed that Jesus was going to return. 10%. And if the 90% are going to the theological schools, to the seminaries and teaching, no wonder only 3% of the students believe that Jesus is going to return. So there was a story, a little boy asked his mother, says, Mommy, when can I go to heaven? She says, well, when you die or when Jesus comes back again. And the little boy's eyes got really big, and he got excited. He said, "Come back! You mean he was here before?" It's like all these students of seminaries and ministers who are proclaiming the gospel supposedly didn't realize he'd even been here the first time, let alone is coming back a second time. Peter clearly tells us in First Peter chapter two that he's coming back again. Uh, he says that several times The mocking existed much like it did In those days That Peter dealt with He acknowledged it, we deal with it Here's what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 Verse 3 Know this, first of all, in the last days Mockers will come with their mocking Following after their own lust, Saying, where is the promise of his coming? Sounds like you could have taken that Just right out today And printed it in the paper printed it and written a letter to us but back up, and he goes on to say, For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens were existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and through the work which the world was at that time destroyed, being flooded by water. They just, didn't, they just kind of wanted to ignore history. Then I mean, we have a lot of people today wanting to ignore history. Because the Bible is reliable history. When you look at the prophets of the Old Testament, there's no way that Isaiah could have known the things that he knew except God had told him. There's no way that Daniel would have known those things except God told him. There's no way that Ezekiel would have known some of the, thing, the things that he said and wrote about except God told him. You come to the New Testament... And it's not a question of, did Jesus really live? No, the only history that we have that's reliable about his life says that he did. Now, there are secular historians, Tacitus, Sarapion, and others who acknowledge a man Jesus, acknowledge followers of him, and... It's clear that Jesus was a man of history. And so you ask people, what do you think about Jesus? They say, well, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. Son of God, well, you know, he was deluded. Well, most delusional people don't teach like they did in the Sermon on the Mount. Most good people don't tell their disciples, you have to follow me even if it means your death. So as C.S. Lewis said, you can't have it. You have Only one conclusion. He was either a liar, a Lord, or a lunatic, or he's Lord. Lunatics don't talk like Sermon on the Mount. Liars don't tell good people to die. So it leaves you with a conclusion that he is the son of the living God. That he came and God interacted with our lives today. Therefore, our message is, he's coming back. But are you ready? Over in Luke 18, there's a parable. The unjust judge. There was a certain widow in a city who kept going to this judge, pleading with him to give her relief from someone, from uh, her opponent. Verse 3 and he says for a while he, a while he was unwilling but afterward he said to himself even though I do not fear God nor respect man yet because this widow bothers me I will, continue, I will give her legal protection otherwise by continually coming she will wear me out and the Lord said hear what the unrighteous judge said now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long for the, over them I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And we have seminary students, 3% of them believe Jesus is coming back. We have ministers who say 90% of them don't believe that he's coming back. 10% of them do. And those are probably in some of the more liberal schools of thought. But I wouldn't be surprised that within churches of Christ, we have some who might question some of those same things because they question other things of Scripture. Now, I'm not talking about the fundamentals. I'm not talking about some of the opinion things we deal with. And I know I'm painting with a broad brush. But I just know human nature. And if it's out there in the world, it doesn't take long before it filters into the church that Jesus died for as well. As it was in the days of Noah, the thoughts of men's mind were on evil continually. Well, now we fast forward. Let's go into the New Testament and find some encouraging words there. Because what's going on? It was on Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus had been raised from the grave, he had been crucified. And on that day in Jerusalem, a day of celebration, Jews from all over, William Barkley, not William Barclay, but Josephus, I think it was, claims that the size of Jerusalem population wise was anywhere from maybe a low point, an average daily population of 50,000 to maybe on the festival days of 250,000 and above. And Josephus would even say that at one point in time at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 that there were 1.1 million Jews in Jerusalem that were killed. Now, so I will just take the lower number of say 300,000 roughly on Pentecost were in Jerusalem that day. They had come for the Passover and they've stayed over longer for this celebration day the Feast of Harvest the Pentecost and now it's time The Spirit of God has been poured out. Peter and the rest of the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, are preaching. And they go on. And here's what they say. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. And he could have been pointing his finger, just as you know. And what did they know? Jesus before Pilate. Pilate comes out and says, "What are we going to do? You know, yeah, I know it's custom, fellas, to turn somebody loose. Well, you want Jesus or someone else?" And they said, "Give us Barabbas. You want Jesus or Barabbas? This rebellious, murderous, cutthroat who is worthy of death, or this Jesus who taught near synagogues, who taught on the side on the highways and the byways, on the seashore, on the... You want him?" And they said, crucify him. You know, we want Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Crucify him. Pilate gets frustrated. He gets a bowl of water. He puts his hands in. He says, I wash my hands of this matter. And he said, his blood be upon you. And they say, upon us and our children also. Peter's preaching to those people. The apostles are preaching to those people that day. And he convinces them with many words, many proofs, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he says in verse 36 of chapter 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now they stand in judgment of the the Almighty God. They've killed His Son. They've killed the promised Messiah. What are they going to do? Well, Peter gives them hope. He says, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, the Gentiles as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Wouldn't you like to know the rest of the sermon? Don't you wish we had that written out? I really think that part of his sermon probably entailed that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And they heard his voice, some of them, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And... When you say, that the man we killed is coming back. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. What's He going to do to me who said crucify Him? He's not going to be happy with me at all. He's probably going to want to see me on a cross. He's going to take my life. Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, kept exhorting them, and so nearly 3,000, those who had received His word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Maybe about a thousandth of a percent were added that day, of the population if we take on that festival day 300,000 maybe a low estimate, maybe a high estimate of numbers that were there in Jerusalem not very many and I think about Lot, I think about Abraham actually, who pleads, Lord if there are 50 righteous souls in that city, will you still destroy it? no, Lord if there are 45 will you destroy it? no, if there are 40, 35 30 how about 20? How about if there are 10 righteous souls? No, I won't destroy it if there are 10 righteous souls. Why didn't Abraham kept going down? You know, one? If it's just Lot, Lord, will you save the city? I don't know why, but I do know that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Because of their gross immorality, abominations. Because many things, as you read Ezekiel, as you read Genesis chapter 19, you read those things, not 19, but as you read Genesis about the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you see what it is. And in Luke, Jesus asks the question, coming back to this, in verse eight, I tell you, he will bring justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that's where it hits you and me, right? Because we're still left. The trumpet of the Lord has not sounded yet. He is coming. You know, I asked Jim to lead the song, "Jesus is Coming Soon." We don't know when he is—morning or night or noon. The song says, "We don't know when he's coming." And I don't know if there's a song that's kind of like that that just says, My Jesus is coming back. I don't know what what we'd say other than, My Jesus is coming back. Be ready. Don't be like they were in the days of Noah, buying and selling. The days of Lot buying and selling, building and farming and doing all these things. Or in the days of Noah, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Don't go, just live life for the day live life for the day the day of Jesus return because you know how it was in the days of noah it said they were the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and i told you to remember that we contrast that in acts chapter 2 and what does it say about the church so then those who, were, who received His word were baptized. And they, that day they were at about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Their lives were changed. In the days of Noah, their hearts were on evil continually. In the days of the preaching of the gospel on Pentecost, it started out, and they were devoted To the apostles' teaching. And we too must be devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The word of God. By our own personal reading of it regularly. By our being in class and participating. By hearing sermons proclaimed. Coming together in homes. Studying the word of God. Coming together in prayer. As we said in our class on Mark, you know, the widow of the woman that had this issue of blood, when she came and she thought to herself, if I just touch his garment, I'll be healed. She made it through that crowd in a weakened condition or disorder of the blood. I don't know how she did it, but she just knew that if she didn't, she was going to die. And she really believed, and she went and reached out. And maybe just the briefest touch on the garment that she could get. And power went out from Jesus and she was healed. And she knew it. And Jesus knew someone had touched her. He said, your faith. And as Jim pointed out in our class, as James would say in chapter 1, when we pray, that pray without doubting. Because the one who doubts, verse 6, if he mut- But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by a wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Believe. Believe that Jesus is coming back, and it will change your life. And that's the way it was on Pentecost. And we can have that same level of faith and commitment to continue on. We know Noah's faith saved him. It wasn't the ark. It was God saving him. The ark was just the vehicle that God used. The ark, God could have chosen any means he wanted. But the ark showed Noah's commitment to God to walk with him, to endure the mockery that he was receiving as he built the ark. Your being here today shows that you're willing to endure the mocking of peers and of others that say, Make fun of you for your faith. We're living in some challenging times, some troubling times. But most of all, we're living in a time in which we are really going to stand out based upon our faith. We're going to stand out like Noah. We're going to stand out like Peter and James and John and for some it may mean our lives i hope not but it will mean a life that's definitely given and surrendered to christ noah and his family were saved in that from that flood peter would say in 1 peter chapter 3 verse 20 considering those considering the patience of god uh, it kept waiting in the days of Noah During the, destruction, the construction of the ark In which a few, that is eight persons Were brought safely through the water Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you Not the removal of dirt from the flesh But an appeal to God for a good conscience Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ Water doesn't do anything, brethren Except show your commitment and your trust Naaman before Elisha Naaman's got leprosy you know the story Naaman's told by Elisha go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan and Naaman walks away thinking that dirty stinking Jordan I'm embellishing I know but it would be equivalent to that right the waters in Syria the rivers in Syria are much better than that Jordan and so his servants if he had told you to do something glorious would you have done it okay yeah his sort of saying, humble yourself, Master. Just do it. And I, I really believe that Naaman was just not fully in it with his heart. He said, okay, I'll do it. Enough faith to say, I'll do it. And that first time he goes in and gets all wet. He comes out still sees the leprosy on him. Second time, he's third time, sixth time. was think it's only one more time. I just as well complete it. And he goes down that seventh time and he comes up and he looks and he's clean. He's elated because the power of God based upon his response in faith, even a very weak faith, is all that it took. If you have the faith, the grain of a mustard seed, Jesus said, you can say to this mountain, be moved and cast in the sea, and it'll be done. Build on faith. And we'll see our congregation grow. We'll see our members grow in faith and in knowledge of the Word of God. And people will flock to the the central because we'll be sharing the gospel with them. My Jesus is coming soon because it's time. We don't know the day, morning or night or noon, but we do know the message of the gospel is that God's grace, His marvelous grace reaches all. This lesson hasn't been one to really tell you the fundamentals of the faith of coming to becoming a Christian. It's just been one designed to say, stop living day by day, marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking, buying and selling, sowing and reaping, whatever you want to call it. It's today that we get serious about our faith. If you stand subject to the invitation of Jesus, whether it be to put him on in baptism, or whether it be to rededicate your life to Christ or come seeking prayers of the church for your strengthening, for your encouragement or something you're dealing with, please come to Jesus. Well, together we stand. And we sing.